I-94 on Lumpen Radio. That should make a difference. Yeah, there we go. There we go. go. Welcome to live radio. So this is I-94, Lumpen Radio's Books and Literature Show. Once again, we are coming to you from the beautiful, sunny downtown Bridgeport neighborhood. Today is September 24th, and want to remind you that, once again, I-94 airs every Sunday at 10 o'clock. We also have an upcoming show live at Pilsen Community Books on October 19th that will feature the work of Tori Telfer and her book, Lady Killers. But today, we're going to be talking live by phone from New York with Andrea Klein. She is the author of Calf, a novel published by Soft Skull Press. I am Jamie Trecker. I'm joined, as always, by Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Michael Sack. Morning, everybody. And we're going to bring in Andrea right now. Andrea, good morning. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, we want to start off talking a little bit about what your novel is about for folks that uh, don't know. Calf is a book that uh, has two plot threads. The first is uh, it is a somewhat fictionalized uh, account of the assassination attempt of Ronald Reagan and uh, by John uh, Hinckley Jr. There is another thread, however, in this book that uh, you note in your introduction uh, deals with something personal to you. And I'd like, to, if you would, to take our readers through that thread, uh, just to start off, if you don't mind. Um, <clears throat> well, the other thread of the book uh, is somewhat autobiographical in that I grew up in Washington, D.C. in the early 80s, which was around the time of Hinckley's assassination attempt. And about a year after that, uh, there was a woman named Leslie DeVoe who, in a had a psychotic episode uh, due to mental illness in which she murdered her daughter, who was 10 years old at the time, and attempted to kill herself as well. And she was uh, found not guilty by reason of insanity, as was John Hinckley Jr. for his assassination attempt. And they were both um, institutionalized at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, and there they both uh, they met, and they had for some years a romantic relationship. And I went to elementary school with Leslie DeVoe's daughter, and she was actually a very uh, close friend of my younger sister. That's so a, that's the personal connection. That, that's a fascinating story. Did, obviously, that influenced you in, in writing this book. I do want to back up for some folks who may not be up on their history. In fact, we were talking about this off the air. Some people, uh, when we were talking about this book uh, outside of the studio, were confusing um, John Hinckley Jr. with David Chapman, of course, right. assassinated John Lennon. Right. Uh, and it is a common thing. Uh, John Hinckley Jr. was born into a wealthy family, and uh, he suffered apparently a paranoid schizophrenia. He he was, as in this, as he's kind of fictionally depicted in this book, your book is very accurate. He uh, started having trouble at school. He, he dropped out. He traveled to uh, Los Angeles to become a singer-songwriter, but he became obsessed with an actress known as Jodie Foster, and particularly Jodie Foster's portrayal in Taxi Driver, uh, where she portrayed a teenage prostitute. Um, Taxi Driver is an interesting film because um, Travis Bickle, played by Robert De Niro in that film, uh, wants to assassinate a presidential candidate. In the film, it is based on George Wallace, but um, and I don't know whether this is where Hinckley got the idea, but Hinckley became obsessed with Jodie Foster and believed that if he assassinated someone, he would become uh, a real star and he would be able to uh, be on a, a level with her. So in 1981, he uh, took a shot at, uh, took five shots actually, at President Reagan and his retinue, Reagan was hit in the chest by a bullet uh, ricochet. 
Uh, James Brady, who of course campaigned on gun violence for years, was seriously wounded. He would later die. His death would be ruled a homicide, I believe, 32 years later. Mm -hmm. But the point I'm getting to is that Hinckley was, as you note, found not guilty by reason of insanity. And that was a very controversial verdict at the time. Um, yes. And, and Hinckley now, of course, has gotten out. He, he's now 62 years old, and I yeah, believe he was, he was remanded to the custody of his mother, which is an interesting kind of coda to this whole thing, especially when, when we're reading your book. But, you know, one of the things that struck me, and I wanted to ask you if this is the case, it has struck me that we have not had, between the 1960s and, and this last period with, with Chapman and Hinckley, we had a very violent period in American history where there was a number of assassination attempts on our presidents and, and presidential candidates. Squeaky Frome on Ford. And civil rights leaders. Absolutely. Fred Hampton here in Chicago. Uh, and that was actually what I was going to mention. It was, it was a very violent time. We've actually been in a very peaceful time. And one of the things I noticed in your book, and I found it extremely uh, honest and riveting was the sense of claustrophobia through the whole book. There's this sense of doom everywhere. Uh, suburban doom, the feeling that people are trapped, and the feeling that this is a, a time when anything could happen, uh, a match could be lit, and it could just explode. And I wondered if that was something that you, you did intentionally, or whether it was just something that is so part of the time you couldn't help it. Because to me, that was extremely uh, a powerful part of this book. Um, that's an interesting point. I think, uh, I mean, I personally don't think we're living in very peaceful times now. Uh, I, I think what's become more, unfortunately, more popular now are, are these mass shootings, um, whereas before it seemed perhaps more individualized. But this book to me was very much about loneliness and isolation in that you have a, a uh, a girl, an 11, 12-year-old girl on the verge of adolescence who's her and her um, her mental state is still forming. And then you have this uh, man in his 20s whose mental state is unraveling. And at some point, those two cross over. There's a sort of ground, a space where they meet. And I think it's interesting, like the character in the book, I was born in 1970. And I think when you grew, if you grew up in the 70s and even the early 80s, there was always this presence of the 60s, of the, of the baby boomer generation that so made a mark in popular culture that it, to me, in a way, it felt like my generation was just sort of powerless to ever have that same sort of effect on the world. And... Likewise, we also saw, you know, all of this activism of the 60s, all of this uh, radicalization, all this movement. And then we were sort of left with, we were left with Ronald Reagan and, and, a, and a new conservative movement in the 80s. And it just felt like we were duped, you know, we were sort of promised this new beginning and then everyone sort of you know, straightened up and flew right. Well, that's interesting. So the people yeah. who are left behind in the wake of that switch is is sort of where these two characters emerge from. I had that. Good morning, Andrea. This is Jeremy, the one who contacted you in the uh, original emails, threads, and um, I read. I was the first one. I actually read your book when it came out. But one of the things that was really poignant for me is I grew up. Uh, I was born the same year as you, and I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit. And you, you had a very um, 
the way that you portray the suburbs and you know you, you talked about loneliness but also the what really affected me when I read your book and it, and it, it, it hit home hard for me is, is the parenting and this or, or lack of kind of uh, you know this you know leftover from the 60s you know kind of throw your kids to the wolves they'll figure it out and right and, right and uh, the 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 stepfather you know the the Vietnam vet with the guns in the drawer and and the photographs and and um, I, I could really relate to that and I, I wanted to actually um, ask you a question it's it's kind of a small very small part but did the did you guys actually have to sing hail to the Redskins when you were in elementary school <laughs> we did isn't that horrible yeah I was uh, I was when I was reading it I actually like football but I was when I was reading the book I'm like well, they actually made the kids sing hail to the Redskins that's yeah that is really horrible um and the, you know, the one thing that, and I think it's been covered in some levels and, and with, you know, the the suburban doom and gloom like Cheever and movies like American Beauty and things like that. But a lot of us that came up in the suburbs, and I agreed what you said, especially, you know, us being from Generation X is like, you know, we didn't have anything. It seemed like that some of the opportunities that our parents had, like my dad was able to go right into a union job. I ended up you know, going into the military because I didn't have a lot of options. And this and this whole, like, Reagan um, lie that was portrayed still to this day, I mean, Reagan is revered in right-wing circles. Um, you know, it, it really pulled, you know, it started this whole, and I think political polarization started during this time. And uh, I just, mm-hmm. and I also just want to say, like, when I read your book, I've read it, three times now but the first time I read I absolutely loved it and uh, I, I'm a librarian here in Chicago and I recommended it to a lot of people because I just thought it was fantastically written and very honest Jamie said it earlier but I think and, and I don't know where Jamie, Jamie lives on the south side of Chicago I don't know what peaceful time he's living in but maybe no no politicians <laughs> are being assassinated we have yeah. 500 murders this year. well I mean that, and that, that was actually what I was speaking I mean we, we are in a very polarized time and I think it's very interesting uh, Andrew that you you bring this up we this is almost a, a book right now that could be read as a uh, a corollary to what we're going through with the, the Trump era because we uh, had a, an era where we were promised a lot of hope and change um, a lot of people felt very disappointed, and now we're in an era uh, with an extreme hard right Neanderthal who makes Ronald Reagan look like Mother Teresa. So it's interesting uh, that the the claustrophobia that I sensed in your book and the loneliness that you you mentioned is something that seems very germane uh, to what's going on in our society today. Hmm. Not only that, uh, I thought, um, I mean, picking up on that theme, I was I was really interested in the structure of the book. Hey, Andrea, this is this is Mike, by the way. Hi. Thanks for coming on. Um, they mirrored each other in a lot of ways. The the thread with Tammy and the thread with uh, Jeffrey Hackney is the character in the book that um, right. portrays Hinckley. Um, they both fantasize a lot. They both, um, Tammy and, and Jeffrey, They bo- so Tammy's 12, Jeffrey's probably 17, 18 years old, and they both... Um, as I a think kind he's of older a, than that. Is he? Yeah. Okay. Well, they both have escape mechanisms of dealing with reality. They both daydream often, and, and kind, there are somewhat lengthy passages where they they reconstruct reality in their minds. And right. I don't I don't think it's mentioned explicitly in the novel, but you know that's I felt like there was a lot of play with mental illness, 
um, I didn't even realize Jeffrey was was a sick in the head character until until later on. I thought you did a great job developing his character into you know someone who turned from a dreamer into a psychopath. Um, right. But both characters are also beholden to an adult world that doesn't know how to govern itself. Um, Jeffrey's parents seem like they're in a not so happy marriage, but they're also rational in um, recommending what Jeffrey does with his life. I don't know if his dad's rational, Mike. He seems like a Luna. Like, you know, just Jesus will figure out your path. To me, that. uh, And his mom seemed like she was in La La Land. I don't think either one of them were very. uh, Unless you're talking about his path in life but they seem right in their recommend recommendations to jeffrey like he might have been rigid and strict but i don't think he was um i think in their own way jeffrey's parents operate from a place of love right it's just a very rigid and kind of blind love because they're not really seeing the state of 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 their son's uh, mental health it's just, you know, his father wants him to fit in this mold and you put one foot in front of the other and you go to college and you get right. a job and that's what you do. Very Reagan, too. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and be like your brother and sister. Right. Regardless if you have the facilities, you know, to do that. And Tammy, the 12-year-old girl, I really... um Sometimes I think there's quite a lot of nostalgia for childhood, um, that childhood is this free, wonderful, uh, coddling time. Adult coloring books? Yeah, yeah. For me personally, that was not my experience at all. I, I sort of felt like childhood was something that had to be endured for 18 years, and then you were sort of set free. And so part of that was was what I was trying to portray with Tammy, that she is trapped by this family. She has people around her. She has people who are, you know, feeding, clothing, housing, educating her. But she's still kind of bursting and and trying to find her way out. And the way that she's, mostly the way she operates is sort of trying to fly under the radar or trying to kind of find loopholes in the rules or trying to kind of sneak around to one side so that she, you know, uh, doesn't aggravate her parents. That's very interesting. We actually have a passage right now that we're going we're gonna to play so you can actually hear the book that we're talking about. Uh, this is a section where Jeffrey uh, actually goes and tours the site of the Lincoln assassination. Uh, we're going to be back in a couple seconds after we play this for you. You're listening to I-94. Jeffrey splurged on an upscale hotel. He was feeling footloose and fancy and free. He was feeling groovy. His hotel had a lobby decorated with paintings from history books. The Battle of Gettysburg, Ben Franklin flying a kite, the Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death speech, and Aaron Burr shooting Alexander Hamilton in a gentlemanly duel. The paintings reminded Jeffrey of children's Bible illustrations, the kind that had Jesus with long, blown dry hair look like he just stepped out of a shampoo commercial. Jesus with the Breck girl, Jesus healing the sick, Jesus in heaven with all the children because he loves them so the meek shall inherit the earth. Jeffrey took comfort in that. Jeffrey ambled through the shiny lobby and dropped off his key with the front desk. 
The clerk asked if he was interested in a free tour of Historic Ford's Theater. There's a group leaving right now with a few extra seats. The bus is right outside. Jeffrey was the only man on the Stars and Stripes chartered coach with the exception of an older Japanese guy sitting with his wife right behind the driver. The bus stopped at several other hotels to pick up passengers, all women, bored wives whose husbands were in town on business, who knew what the men were doing. They could be arms negotiators or secret operatives reporting in, except no one was supposed to know that they were secret operatives or reporting in. That's why they pretended to be tourists. At Ford's Theater, they watched a slideshow of inky illustrations depicting Lincoln getting shot, Lincoln falling over backward in his rocking chair with his hands fluttering around his heart, Big Fat Mary Todd jumping out of her seat and John Wilkes Booth making his getaway, all because they went to see a stupid play, Our American Cousin, a comedy. The last slides were photos of Shakespeare productions and Nutcracker ballets that they had at the theater today. After the lights came up, a woman raised her hand and asked if the theater was named after President Ford. A tour guide led them through the theater and up the stairs to Lincoln's presidential box. This is where Booth shot him in the head straight through the stovepipe hat, stabbed the other guy, jumped down the stage, shouted, Six Semper Tyrannis, and ran off with a broken leg. One by one, the tourists each got to move to the front of the velvet rope and get a close-up snapshot of Lincoln's rocking chair. Jeffrey imagined it must have been annoying, having Lincoln there rocking back and forth, making creaking sounds when people were trying to watch a show. The tour group shuffled back downstairs and across the street to the old boarding house where Lincoln actually died. Four men carried him over to this cruddy little room where they tried to lay him on the bed, but he was so tall he didn't fit. He died an uncomfortable death with his legs hanging off the bed. Jeffrey thought the tour of this dead president was boring. He would have preferred the booth tour, Actors no drama. Shimmy down the curtains and run off with Dr. Mudd to die in a tobacco barn shootout. Give me liberty or give me death. You can't make that kind of stuff up. When the tour bus dropped him back at the hotel, Jeffrey could see the blonde hair shining through the glass and case lobby. As he walked in, he became hypnotized to the mane of glistening hair, the waterfall of shimmering yellow light. The blonde left the desk and drifted to the elevator. Jeffrey followed her sparkly wake several steps behind. The elevator dinged and opened and the blonde stepped in. When she pressed her button and turned around to face the lobby, Jeffrey caught her eye for a split second and the time it takes for a single blink before the elevator doors were sealed. Amber Carroll. She was staying in his hotel. It was such dumb luck. Or, no, no, it wasn't luck. Jeffrey didn't believe in luck. He had never been lucky. He couldn't believe it was a coincidence. It could only be fate. And that was a passage from Andrea Klein's Calf, published by Soft Skull Press. Music by Julie Parmelo and the Chicago <coughs> Symphony Orchestra for us today. We thank them very much for their contributions. Andrea, really powerful passage uh, there that, that really struck me as kind of emblematic of what this entire book is about. Could you take us a through that a little bit? Just because, to me, that really kind of nailed what was going on with your construction of that character and... It's the first indication to me, uh, in a way, in the book, that's to me the tipping point where you realize that, uh, as Mike put it, he's not just a dreamer. He's got something seriously wrong with him. Well, uh, this is a passage that is part of the fictionalized Hinkley character's trajectory. And he has lied to his parents and said he was going to go to uh, a vocational school in Washington, D.C. But instead, he's been trying to track down this movie star Amber Carroll because he knows she's shooting a movie in Washington and he's 
spent his time sort of wandering around the historical sites of Washington, and then he just bumps into her at the same hotel that he happens to be staying at. And there's this idea that he's sort of walking into a movie, and that was actually um, inspired by a quote uh, from Hinckley. Uh, sometime during his trial, he said when he when he actually shot at Reagan, he said it was like I was walking into a movie. I was actually the person, that he, in his mind, the hero pulling the trigger. And so he, the fictionalized character Jeffrey, it's his worlds are sort of are sort of colliding, and then a little bit after this, he sort of inserts himself into the movie crew and and tries to make forays to meet Amber Carroll, the actress. Did you feel any any way at all about portraying Amber as Jodie Foster or completely opposite to Jodie Foster? I purposely made the the fictional character Amber Carroll much older okay. than Jodie Foster was at the time. Jodie Foster was a teenager when Hinckley was stalking her. Oh, that's right. Did he, she go to Yale really yes. young? And yes, Hinkley, Hinkley went she to was Yale a well. freshman. Yes. She was a freshman at Yale University That's right. when Hinckley started stalking her. And he, he it was um, actually a really horrible case of stalking. He would, um, you know, leave messages for her. She was living in the dorms. He would leave messages for her. He would call her. Somehow he got her phone number. But he also threatened to kill her. He threatened to kill her professors and classmates. And it was not just um, it was not just someone with an outsized crush on a movie star. It, it was uh, very uh, threatening, very violent. And so I purposely didn't want it to didn't want that character to be too close to Jodie Foster. So I made her older. You know, she was an adult. She was not in college. She was not a student. She was uh, an adult movie star. She's really in mean. In her 20s. She is really mean, yeah. <laughs> I'd be mean, She's too. She's very entitled. Yeah. Yeah. I, I might be mean, too, though. As, yeah, if <laughs> I had to tolerate Hinckley or Jeffrey. But, you know, if Jeffrey. someone's stalking you, that's, the, that's also commonly used as an excuse for violence against women is, like, well, she was really mean. And I didn't know, you know, are you supposed to be nice to people who are stalking you? I don't think so. Yeah, I don't. No. Right. Well, it, before that, to her whole crew, she had a reputation for being kind of she a, a, a nasty lady. Sure. And it's, it's interesting because you bring up the point. When Jodie Foster was being stalked by Hinckley, I believe a lot of people were dismissive of it, if I'm remembering the, the actual history correctly. Uh, because he went to, Hinckley went to Yale and took a seminar. And as, oh, you, as yeah. you're right, he caught up with her. He was sitting next to her in the steps. He was, as, as, as Ms. Klein correctly points out, he was... Uh, sending threatening notes, threatening to kill her. But I remember at the time, uh, Jodie Foster had asked for police protection and didn't get it, as I recall, which shows you uh, how much violence against women was tolerated at that time and maybe still is today. Well, I've known people that were stalked that moved out of cities because, you know, until they actually do something, yeah. you know, physically or threat, you know, threaten them, you know, the, the police can't do anything, which is, to me beyond ridiculous but that you know that's the case with a lot of uh with the law enforcement and the way they treat us something that's a horrible problem um just i i had andrew i had a question for you one of the uh 
one of the parts of the book that I really was, it was very intense. There was two that when I was reading it struck me. And the one was when Jeffrey actually grabbed Amber's arm and she was trying to pull away from him. And that, that, that was a really intense moment for me. But is there um, any autobiographical link to when going back to the house where um, Kieran was murdered and looking for the stepfather's gun? Was that a, uh, I thought that was a really, and those kids, you know, I grew up with kids like that, like the junior high, just little jerks. That I thought that was very, uh, very realistic portrayal. I had of, to put it down for a second. Yeah, <laughs> I can't think of that one kid's name, but the one that was egging everyone else. Kenny, or yeah, yeah. he was such a little jerk. I'd call him something else if we weren't on the radio. But was did, did that actually happen? Because that was really intense. No, no, that's completely fiction. Well, you did My a group. Are not have never been uh, gun owners. Well, that was fantastic. Uh, I I grew up with guns, and I I thought that was just such a um, well written, intense moment. Like one of those, uh, you know, it's like something you read in a book, and I'm just like, oh my god, I can totally relate well, to this. The thing about the suspense scenes in this book is that the there's this psychological undercurrent that's that's itself suspenseful. So like, it happened in. Uh, what was the other scene when um, the neighbors find um, the mother who shot herself and, and her daughter dead? There's this whole back and forth battle between the two neighbor ladies. There's a whole history between them about how one kind of domineers the other. And it was just such a well-written scene. Um, did, you, did you plan for that? Or is that something that just kind of came out in the writing? Um, well, I think, obviously, the book is also quite a lot. It's about violence, these sort of big sensational acts of violence, but also these little intimate acts of violence that happen in in social situations, you know, with kids trying to figure out who's on top. Mm-hmm. And, um, and likewise, in the friendships of um, uh, the neighbors of the mother, uh, who you, you see those kind of junior high um, social, you know, dog matches still being played out by adult women, where one's like, oh, you know, this isn't, you're making a big deal out of nothing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's interesting in that scene where the two neighbors find the mother, it was, was uh, uh, very difficult for me to write. Um, sometimes I feel, I originally come from a background in, in the performing arts and theater and dance. So sometimes when I'm writing, I often feel like I'm, I'm all the actors playing all the characters. And in these, in, especially in these, in these scenes that were very much inspired by real life, it was very, it was very difficult to, to, to write. And... I, I did I did some research for this book. Of course, I, I researched the Hinckley story quite a bit. And then I also went back and I read newspaper articles from from the DeVoe case, from the from the mother who murdered her her daughter. And sometimes I feel like when when you're a writer researching something for fiction, you're always looking for you're looking for kind of something to solve a problem for you. And you can 
research forever. You can get trapped in, in a cycle of research and, and then sometimes you think, you convince yourself that you're writing, but you're not. You're really just researching and wasting time. But one of the things researching the DeVoe case that really struck me was that the family had a dog. And I didn't remember that from my childhood, from knowing that family. Um, but the fact that they had a dog, and I, I just, it, that really took me into that scene. What did the, the dog witness this? The dog was trapped in the house for almost a whole day with these, with these two people dying. And what was that like? So there, there are a lot of um, unexpected things that you find when you kind of go back into it. Great stuff. We have to take a quick break here, and then we're going to be uh, right back with Andrew Klein, the author of CAF. Uh, just stay tuned for folks. You're listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM. This is Lumpin' Radio. Before dinner, Tammy asked Steffi to rehearse with her so she could practice memorizing her lines. Steffi read the Dorothy parts and Tammy melted on her bedroom floor. Tammy liked yelling the last part about how she couldn't believe a little girl like Dorothy could kill a wicked witch like her. And then she died. Steffi read the whole part lying on her bed with the script pages sticking up off of her stomach. She wasn't really acting. I don't think you're doing this right, Steffi said. What do you mean? I don't think you should yell this part. Why not? I'm mad. I'm supposed to yell. Yeah, but you're melting. I don't think melting people can yell. Yes, they can. They can when they're mad that someone threw water on them and melted them. They're mad because they're dying and they don't want to die. I don't think that the witch is mad. I think she's sad. I think she's trying to decide what to do. She can't do anything. She's melting. But maybe there's a magic spell to stop her from melting and bring her back to life. But she doesn't know what it is. This is her last chance. It's her last chance to be a good witch. Tammy knew Steffi was wishing there was some kind of magic spell to bring Kieran back to life. But there wasn't. She was really dead. They had gone to her funeral and Tammy had worn her itchy pantsuit and Steffi had worn a skirt. Kieran's dad cried the whole time and it was hard to look at him. When Tammy and Steffi left the church, he pulled Steffi toward him in a sideways hug. Then he let her go and walked into the parking lot, still crying. Steffi thought she would get to see Kieran lying in a coffin, but there was only a little square box about the size of a jewelry box that her mother kept on the top of her dresser. Tammy's mother said that meant Kieran had been cremated and now she was just ashes. Tammy and Steffi never saw Kieran again, not even dead. Tammy wasn't sure what Steffi meant about the witch trying to be good. Tammy couldn't change the words in the script. Even if the wicked witch was going to decide to be a good witch, it's all the same in the end. She has to die and the nice girl has to win. Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to I-94 on WLP and LP Chicago, 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. We are speaking today with author Andrea Klein about her novel, Calf. And that was a selection just from her book right there. That was, um, to me, another really interesting selection uh, about uh, how the two young girls in the book, one of whom is 12, is dealing with the murder 
of her friend. And I wondered, Andrew, if you could take us through that, because to me, that was another pivotal kind of moment in the book, uh, kind of encapsulating a lot of things that are going on, this kind of wishing and dreaming, and also this kind of cold, stark realism uh, that goes along with just about everything in the book. This is, this is a, uh, to me, a very powerful scene. Yeah, these are the two sisters, Tammy and her younger sister, Steffi, and they're rehearsing a scene from their school play, which is The Wizard of Oz. And Tammy has the part of the Wicked Witch of the West, and they're rehearsing the scene where the Wicked Witch of the West melts and dies. And sort of using their their age-appropriate uh, critical skills to kind of think about how, how this is... Uh, how this relates to their friend who has died. And there's just a really interesting selection, by the way. Um, the line in there where Tammy realizes um, you can't change the words in a script. That's what you have to say. And I think that's emblematic of, of, of Tammy. She's, that's what she's trying to do. She's trying to change the words to the script of her life. And but also at the same time, these two young girls realizing that death is very final and there's no get up from the floor after you've died and take a bow and everybody applauds and it was all just make-believe because it wasn't. And um, I think that's also something very much about the era that I grew up in was that I, you know, I, I think the media that we, we grew up in was, was rather violent. It wasn't so, we weren't so protected and, and we sort of, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I'm not a child in this environment, so I, I can't, I can't say what that's like. Well, we didn't really um, have safe spaces and, you know, one of my friends, right, right. one of my friends always jokes, like when he was a kid, when he had a timeout, it was when he came back after getting knocked out. You know, I mean, it's, we don't, you know. Uh, the level everybody's on camera everybody's online you know if you smack a kid in public and someone films it it could ruin your life you know it wasn't like that when we were kids i'd you know i'd see kids right get, you could get a quote-unquote get away with something yeah i mean you could get your butt kicked by your parents in public and no one would blink an eye you know i mean it was just a completely different time and um i one of the uh the lines in that that last passage too and when, when her mother tells Steffi that she's just ash now that's like so brutally harsh you know to think like okay you know because and one thing I wanted to tell you is I you know I, I'm a children's librarian by trade uh, and I've studied a lot of uh, child development I worked with kids for almost two decades and you really nailed like writing about children because it's so hard to do and so many people do it terribly but you know just that okay you know, you, you just think of the kid thinking, oh, like, she's like an ash, like on the end of a cigarette. You know, she, it doesn't say that in the book, but that's, you know, that's such a, you know, it's like saying, oh, you're, you're, you know, your grandfather's going to go into that wet, cold ground now and rot or something like that. You know, it's just <laughs> like such a, such a harsh uh, thing to say to a child. And I, it, it, and it, again, you know, I told, I mentioned earlier, I, I grew up in this time too, and it was just, it was totally different. And I, I think you nailed the era and also writing about kids. So I just wanted to mention that. Andrew, Thank I, you. I really liked hearing you be surprised at your at your own stuff, um, <laughs> and and I mean that. I think that's it. Seems to me one of the best parts about um, writing, being able to surprise yourself when you're on. Um, and there's, I wanted to ask you about this this sentence. I'm sure you don't remember it, but it's on page 108 of the book, and it's talking about 
uh, Jeffrey having to take medicine for the first time. He's been prescribed, I think, Valium. And you're describing the the pills moving on the table. It says they jiggled like a giant pair of tiny breasts. That's not the word you use, but yes, we do have to. By the way, some of some of Miss <coughs> Klein's words we did have to censor, so the script has been changed a little bit, and for that we apologize. They jiggled That's like okay. a like a giant pair of tiny breasts for a skinny white female insect, some slutty mini creature performing a disembodied striptease on the edge of a flat world. And when I read that, I was like, "What did Don DeLillo just slip in here?" It it was something that was very different from the tone of your syntax in the rest of the book. The rest of the book was kind of, I hate using the word minimalist, but mm-hmm. there were very short sentences. It was very stark. And but that, he means minimalist. But I mean minimalist. <laughs> um, that sentence just seemed to come out of nowhere, and it. I don't know, I felt like maybe that was it, it was a cool one for you to write. Does that happen a lot when you're writing? Do you surprise yourself a lot? Um, I, yeah, I think that's one of the joys of, of writing is, is surprising yourself. And, um, you know, sometimes you set out and, and you sketch out where things are going to go. And then sometimes, you know, characters walk into the book that you didn't expect to walk in. And sometimes, you know, you, you sort of put yourself into a, a scene and... You're through your characters. You're observing your surroundings, and and you surprise yourself by by what's there, because this book is, uh, and now we're aging ourselves. But now this book feels um, historical. There was a lot of, um, you know, I had to really conjure up a lot of the the details of the era. But it was very. It was a really interesting exercise in memory, if you. Especially what I find, what I found helpful was not to try and remember everything all at once, but just to remember one detail. And then from that detail, another detail comes up. So for me, for instance, um, because this book took place in the early 80s, if you remember that, you know, we used to have landlines and they were corded phones. And then I would remember, well, in my family, we had a phone, it was on the wall of the kitchen. And it had a really long, like it had an extra long cord because you could buy extra long cords so you could walk to the end of your kitchen and back and not be tied to this one area of the wall. And then you would remember, oh, right, those really extra long cords, which were those spirals, used to get tangled up. And then you would play the game where you would hold the receiver upside down and watch it kind of unwind. Mike might not remember rotary phones. He's the he's the baby of our... Uh... Oh, I do. Oh, do you? I do. Oh, okay. Andrew, I wanted to ask you, since Mike brought it up, did you read uh, Libra by Don DeLillo when you were working on this book or thinking about this book? Because that, of course, is another classic uh, book about uh, an assassin. I did not, actually. I think I've read um, White Noise by DeLillo, and his more recent book, was it called Falling Man or something? Yes. Yes. I don't quite remember. Yeah. Yeah. I thought of Libra a lot when I when I read your book, but I mean in a in a different sense, just because I had read that many years ago, and of course it is a classic book about uh, about Oswald. One of the things, though, that that struck me, and it's it's interesting that we're talking about it as a group. Your uh, I don't want to say your other life, but you have a background as well in choreography and dance. And one of the things that struck me about this book 
and especially in the structure of it, I think Michael alluded to it before, is it felt like a dance. You know, some of the things that are going on, the people are kind of dancing around each other. There's a lot of movement between all the characters. And one of the things that's, that's very hard to do in, in any book is create the sense of action and momentum. Uh, you know, I have a background in, in nonfiction writing, but I come from a, a fiction writing family. And when I've tried my hand at writing fiction, one of the, the most difficult things is always to keep people locked in on your characters moving forward. You did a great job in that. And one of the, one of the final excerpts we're going to play, I think, really shows this at its height in your book. But I wanted to know if, if you thought your dance background and your choreography background was brought to bear on this book. And did you kind of think of that uh, as, a, as a way to get the structure of the book moving? Yes, very much so. Excellent question. Um, I, yes, I very much think of writing novels, because I don't really write short stories at all, um, as choreography. And that's part of the excitement for me, is, is figuring out the structure of a long work. Um, likewise, in my choreographic works, I made um, what's considered full-length pieces, which is usually uh, an hour or so. And so I, I like the long form, and I'm very much thinking about um, choreography in terms of rhythm, in terms of pacing, in terms of how long you can hold an emotional tone, um, all sorts of things like that. Yeah, very much so. I never, I so rarely get asked that question. I'm very pleased that you asked that. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie's our, the smart one in the group. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, too, about the wind-up bird. Uh, I, I don't know why that stuck out. Um, there's a For our listeners, there's a scene in the mm -hmm. book where Hinkley um, buys a wind-up bird. I believe it's out of a gumball machine, right? Yeah. I'm not Hinkley. I'm sorry, Jeffrey. And um, he th there's before he goes off to do the assassination, he winds the bird up, and it clicks over to the end of the table, and it doesn't fall off. Um, and I... Was that supposed to be um, metaphorical, like for, you know, he's mentally ill, he's going to walk to the edge, he's going to do this, and then we'll see what happens? Or was it just something that happened? I, I have a tendency to look too deeply into thing, events in books like a wind-up bird, but I've always been obsessed. Um, you know, the, there's the wind-up bird chronicle by Murakami, and then <laughs> Homer Simpson had the drinking bird when he goes on disability. Yeah. <laughs> He's wearing the moo Yeah, when he... Uh, that's, that's the best. Yeah, and... It I, just hits the letter Y. Yeah, yeah it's like, I just doubled my input, you know, and... But uh, I don't know why, and I love birds. I have tattoos of birds on me, and I, I don't know why that stuck out with me so uh, vividly, but was there any intention of that, or was that just a random scene? Well, both sort of. Um, you know, it's random that he gets this. Uh, you know, gumball machines are always so tragic because you never get the one with the toy that you want. <laughs> um, I I literally just went through this a couple weeks ago with my seven year old nephew who did not get the thing he wanted, and it was just tears and oh, tragedy. Um, so, but I, I think part of what uh, the Hinkley character is is that he's looking for signs and he'll 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 create them anywhere. So it's it's you know, of course scientifically chance that he got this um gumball machine toy that was a wind up bird and then the bird goes all the way to the edge but doesn't um fall to its doom. It just it just stays there. And he's looking in that scene he's looking for a sign to tell him to go. To That's like, right. Okay, go do this. And that was that was his sign. 
So he but would it have, probably could have been anything. It could yeah. have been like a cloud formation or exactly crossing the yeah. street. A taxi slams on the brakes. I gotcha. I really, I really thought that scene was cool though. Which I think that was another thing that reminded me of the Lilo stuff because coincidence is is a huge theme of many of the Lilo's works, and that was a huge theme in this book. And there's also something just I don't even know how to describe it atmospheric in the tone. There's there's something. Mm-hmm happening in the air of the narration um andrea i wanted to ask you about a minor character in the book josie Uh uh-huh uh-huh um so josie is the mother of uh, a young girl who's kind of the leader of that little retinue of of uh, that gretchen's mother yeah yeah gretchen reminded me of the girls i grew up with (laughs) yeah yeah and she she has this kind of power struggle with another mother josie's a little bit more timid she's the one who's worried about uh, Kieran and her mother and thinks she's making too big of a deal of it. Um, there's a whole psychological battle that plays out with her and another mother um, while they find the body. And um, it seemed like you you had a, a powerful connection with Josie. She's only in, in, in a few scenes, but there are two um, that really stuck out to me. And one is in the beginning of the book, She's you're talking about... Um, how she was working on a thesis and she let it go and family life took over and everything got put to the side and she's going through her old papers and she it, she feels like that was those papers belong to another person and then mm-hmm. near the end of the book after everything is has went down she's driving in her car and she's she's unhappily married she's she's kind of lost her way and there's a moment where she she thinks to herself she's in a car She's got a full tank of gas. She has a checkbook. She could go anywhere. And she decides to turn home. Um, right. Is that... Could you talk about Josie and what she meant to you? And, and uh, yeah. Well, Josie um, isn't based on anyone, by the way. Um, she just is one of those characters that emerged while writing the novel. And... Yes, she was. She was, uh, you know, a typical adult experience, ex- especially for women, where she was on a, a career path. She was working on a graduate degree, and then um, she married and she got pregnant and had a daughter, and and just domestic life and and family responsibilities sort of took over. And now her daughter's um, eleven or twelve and more independent. And and now where is she now? You know, she's still being a stay-at-home mother, even though she's not needed in the same way as she as she was when her child was younger. And so she's sort of, she also wants her life to mean something. And when she sort of discovers this, you know, something that could be dramatic, although she didn't think it was going to be as dramatic as, as it was, she sort of latches on to that. She's that gives her a purpose, trying to figure out what's happened with um, uh, Kieran and her mother. And there's, there is a power struggle with this woman next door whose name is Meredith, who's a more mature, kind of self-assured person who kind of brushes her off. And Josie's last scene, it's, yeah, she's, so now she's, she's been through this huge, trauma of, of 
her friend becoming severely mentally ill, and she's sort of been through that on the other side of that, and realizes that yeah, she she actually does have the 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 tools and the wherewithal to to change her life, but she doesn't, and or maybe she does in the future. We don't know, and I think that it's just like another little personal tragedy that you could kind of come so far and and be right back where you started yeah it really hit me interesting we have one last reading that we're going to play because we're running out of time here but this is a a scene in fact where the uh jeffrey actually takes on and uh shoots uh someone you're going to find out who in just one second we'll be right back after this this was jeffrey's movie it would go down the way he wanted. He was the writer, director, and star. Shoot forward, stab backward, six shots, six chances, good odds. Jeffrey took a deep breath. He heard someone call action inside of his head. Our hero draws his gun and locks his elbow in a straight line extending from his shoulder. His arm feels like part of the gun. It feels strong and made of steel. He pulls the trigger. The first shot is loud and sends a jolt through his body. Women scream and everyone ducks down. Jeffrey feels better after the first shot. Things are in motion. There is no more worry about whether or not something is going to happen. He had jumped out of the airplane. The parachute had opened and he was launched into a controlled freefall. A pleasurable feeling of power sweeps across Jeffrey's arms. The same arms that would soon hold Amber close and tight. With the second shot, people scatter on the ground like cockroaches bombed out of their lairs. The Secret Service men draw their weapons. The tuxedo pimp grabs Amber. Jerk. Let go of her. Number three. Bang! Jeffrey gets used to the sound. Flashes are going off. Jeffrey is stepping out onto the red carpet. His fans are cheering. Some jerk tries to push his arm down with his free hand. Jeffrey pulls out his knife and stabs the guy in the gut. We'll see what you had for breakfast. Four. Pow! Amber is screaming, confused. She's breaking down. He's getting through to her. Jeffrey feels arms grab him around the waist. Jeffrey doesn't care. He doesn't care as long as he has that one arm. All he needs is that one arm. Someone kicks the back of his knees and makes him take a step forward. There are two bullets left, one for each of them. He has to take her with him, even if he isn't getting out of here. That was the plan. Finish what you started. That's what his dad would say. Jeffrey tilts his head to the side and presses his cheek into the flesh of his upper arm. Make it a good one. Do it for her. I'm sorry, Amber. I love you. This might hurt. I love you. I'm sorry. Five. Amber turned around and lurched like a duck trying to fly off the surface of a pond. She looked directly at Jeffrey and opened her mouth as her pink bodice became soaked with red, matching the carpet beneath her glass slippers. She stumbled to her knees and collapsed to the earth, blonde locks cascading perfectly over her face as a golden shroud. She was an angel now. Jeffrey had made her one. Jeffrey felt exhilarated. He felt all the color being restored to his body. He heard the crowd screaming for him. He felt alive, alive, alive. So alive he must have been dead before. He forgot about the last bullet meant for him. He could do it, but he didn't need to. He didn't want to. He felt great. He felt high. He was walking on air even as someone wrenched his arm behind his back, kneed him in the stomach, and shoved his face down to the uncarpeted concrete. He loved that concrete. All the tiny pebble dots making up a smooth, hard surface with little glints of sparkles. The first time he spoke to Amber, she was sitting on concrete. 
If he was lying like this and she was sitting there again, he would be able to see the clean white surface of her underwear glowing beneath her skirt. He would be allowed in. And that was the final section that we have today from Andrea Klein's Cafe. I want to thank all the musicians, especially the International Anthem Recording Archive, Tamika Reed and Julie Pomerlo. Andrea, we are running a little out of time. This has just flown by. It's been a fabulous, fabulous conversation with you. We wanted to ask you, what, do you have another project coming up that we can, can tell our listeners about? Um, I have a, another novel coming up. It's called Eden, but it won't be out until next July. And is that also on Soft Skull? No, that's on Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Oh, that's my publisher. Yeah. Excellent. There you go. Excellent. <laughs> Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, publisher of Champions. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a sneak preview of Eden? Can you tell us what it's about? Uh, Eden is about two sisters who survive um, being abducted as children. And then they don't really know each other as adults. One sort of dropped off uh, the grid, and no one really knows where she is. Her name is Eden. And the protagonist is her sister, whose name is Hope, and she sets out to find Eden. But really, she's trying to find herself. Well, let's get you on the show when that comes out. We'll have yeah, you back this uh, next summer. Um, Andrea, thanks for being on the show. and uh, Thank you. I, I hope you have a wonderful day. Yeah, all the best. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been a great show. We want to remind everybody their next live show will be in two weeks. You can always hear I-94 on Lumpen Radio Sundays at 10 o'clock in the morning. And you can see us live at Pilsen Community Books on October 19th with Tori Telfer for Lady Killers. This has been I-94 on Lumpen Radio. We'll see you soon, guys. is Lumpen Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday at 10 a.m. Central. This episode featured the book Calf from Soft Skull Press, written by Andrea Klein. Additional music from the show came from Julie Palmerlaw and the Lumpen Audio Archive. This episode originally aired on September 24, 2017. I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Bolt, intro and promo voiced by David Green, with music by Lori Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive.